Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Andrew Kaufman, the Assistant Director of Community Engaged Learning Initiatives at UVA's Center for Teaching Excellence and an Associate Professor of General Faculty in the College of Arts and Sciences. Andrew joined the Center for Teaching Excellence in December of 2019 from UVA's Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures, where he has designed and taught courses since 2005. In 2010, he founded Books Behind Bars, a course in which undergraduate students and committed youth at a juvenile correctional center meet to explore questions of meaning, value, and social justice through questions about Russian literature classics. In this podcast, Professor Kaufman will discuss his book, The Gambler Wife, a true story of love, risk, and the woman who saved Dostoevsky. This book tells a story of Anna Sninken, a 20-year-old stenographer who applied for a job with a famous author. The book chronicles the life of this woman, her life with Dostoevsky, who became her husband, their partnership, and how and why Anna went on to found her own publishing house, a book distribution business, and a literary museum, just to name a few of her ventures. So thank you, Andrew, for being here today and talking about your new book, The Gambler Wife, and this remarkable woman, Anna Sinka. Thank you, Susan. Uh, delighted to be here. So let's start with what led you to tell the story about Anna. So I, as you mentioned in the intro, I'm a Russian literature scholar. Um, I would say a Russian literature fanatic. Um, my Previously, my, my last two books were about Tolstoy. And so I was always a Tolstoy guy. But it, and it wasn't until I started teaching in a prison that I gained a much deeper appreciation of Dostoevsky, who himself was incarcerated, spent four years in a Siberian prison camp. And so my interest shifted to Dostoevsky, and I started researching more about him, reading biographies about him. And there was one name that kept coming up in all of these biographies, Anna Dostoevskaya, which was the married name of, of the subject of my book. And it was clear, even in the biographies, that Anna Dostoevskaya was an important figure in Dostoevsky's life. But then I took an interest in her, and so I started digging around only to discover there's no biography about her. And so then I went to the archives and I started reading her memoirs. Um, some of, um, a lot of these materials were only published in Russian. And as I read, I, I realized that, that this Anna Dostoevsky was not just important to Dostoevsky's career. She was, she was vital to his career and to his life. She saved him um, professionally, personally, um, in, in so many different ways. And I realized that she needed her story told um, and she needed to turn in the spotlight. And so what I wanted to do with this book is really kind of turn the tables and show the woman uh, or rather the man behind the woman uh, and put the woman out, out in front. And Anna is, is just so complex and so compelling. And, and I wanted to tell her story, her partnership with Dostoevsky that was so fruitful but also how she herself was extraordinarily accomplished. You mentioned a few of her accomplishments. She was Russia's first solo female publisher. She um, published seven editions of Dostoevsky's complete collected works, which was an enterprise that not only would become the model for how uh, 
Russian writers would be published in the future, but in fact earned her family in today's money $5 million. So she was a really successful businesswoman as well. Uh, and so it's her story, her power, her complexity, that, and her agency that I wanted to focus on in this book. Yeah, it's really quite an extraordinary story. And, and you know, it started really quite right from the beginning. So can you describe where Dostoevsky was in his career when Anna met him? It starts right away. So the book opens with her uh, showing up on October, 44, uh, October 4th, 1866. She was 20 years old. He was uh, 44. She had been hired as his stenographer. And the reason she was hired is very revealing about where Dostoevsky was in his career. Suffice it to say that he was an important writer, but not yet the great writer of the great novels that we are all aware of. He was struggling financially. He was in constant debt. Um, he had a terrible uh, gambling addiction, which was one of the reasons for his debt. Um, you know, he was a terrible business person. He did not do a good job managing his career from a, a commercial standpoint. And so one of the things that he did was a year and a half before he met Anna, he signed um, probably the worst publishing contract an author has ever signed in the history of writing. Uh, he was hard up for cash. He needed an advance of 3,000 rubles. Um, and uh, which in today's money is only $25,000. And in exchange for $25,000, so that he could go to Europe and gamble and also see his secret mistress, um, he was willing to give this unscrupulous publisher by the name of Fyodor Stilovsky um, the, right, the right to publish a standalone edition of all of his works up to that point, including works that were still in print. And he promised Stilovsky a brand new novel by November 1st, 1867. Well, and should he forfeit, should he not deliver that novel, he would have lost the copyrights on everything he wrote for the next nine years. That was the contract that Dostoevsky <coughs> signed. Well, October 1st rolled around. He had not written a word of that novel, and it was due in a month. And so he became desperate. He contacted a well-known stenography professor in Petersburg and said to, asked him to recommend his best pupil, to help him take down, to take down his dictation. And that his best pupil was Anna Snitkina. And that is how she showed up um, at his door. But, you know, it's, had Anna not shown up in Dostoevsky's life at the point, at the, at the moment that she did, um, we probably would not have, not only the novel that he wrote for Stolovsky called The Gambler, interestingly, but we wouldn't have The Idiot. We wouldn't have, uh, the Possessed, we wouldn't have The Adolescent, we wouldn't have Brothers Karamazov, some of Dostoevsky's major works that were, um, that Anna's presence in his life, her business acumen, and frankly, just her support of, of this incredibly um, feckless man in so many aspects of his life. Without that support, he, you know, he might very well have ended up in a ditch somewhere like Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, I mean, throughout the book, you really do see examples um, of how Dostoevsky needed Anna. And from your perspective, what do you think motivated her to stay with him? I should also add, um, in connection with that question, he was also really lonely when he showed when she showed up at his door. She commented, you know, in her memoir about what she saw, you know, in front of her was a broken man, a, a depressed man. He was gruff. He was 
depressed, um, and he was lonely. He had been jilted twice by two women he'd proposed to in recent years. He was not the most attractive uh, bachelor, you know, it was not the greatest catch, even though he was a, a really important writer. Um, and so when Anna showed up, he was also incredibly lonely. And that's the other reason that he needed her. Why did she need him? That's a really important question. Why did she stay when, when she went through all of this struggle with him? And even her, her family and her friends advised her not to marry Dostoevsky. She needed him because she had actually met him on the page before she met him in person. Dostoevsky was Anna's favorite writer when she was a teenager, which is a really important fact. She loved Dostoevsky. He was her father's favorite writer. In fact, Anna recalled how, how uh, she would, uh, her father would subscribe to Dostoevsky's journal where some of his novels at that time were published. And, um, and Anna would, would kind of sneak up to him after he would fall asleep in the wing chair and, and, and remove the, the volume from his fingers and sneak off into the garden and lose herself in her two favorite novels of Dostoevsky were Notes from the House of the Dead which was a semi-fictionalized prison memoir about Dostoevsky's time in prison and another novel called The Insulted and Injured. Um, so she was a very literate person. She was very well read and she loved Dostoevsky. And she was a young feminist. She proudly considered herself a feminist, a member of that generation of women for whom independence was important. And this opportunity to work for Dostoevsky kind of satisfied both of her loves, her love of this writer and her desire to be financially independent. And so this partnership with Dostoevsky afforded Anna the opportunity to have a really meaningful career, um, not just a potentially lucrative one as a stenographer, but a meaningful one where she was helping to support a writer that she herself deeply admired. Um, and so that, that, that was some of the, those were some of the most important original reasons that she stayed with him. But, but as things went on, I just want to also mention, let's not lose sight of the fact that she loved him with all of his faults. She loved him deeply. And some women today might even fault her for loving him too much, almost to her, you know, the point of, to the point of self-sacrifice. Um, it's not my job to judge that. I just tell the story. But the fact is, his devotion, her devotion to him was incredibly profound in spite of all of his faults and vice versa. His love of her was deep and profound as well. And so ultimately, that is the glue that kept this relationship together when things really started to fall apart, um, you know, during their, their honeymoon, which did not have very much honey in it. <laughs> Yeah, um, one of the aspects of the book that I did find so interesting was your description of 1860s Russia and the feminist movement at the time. And, you know, you just said that, you know, Anna was a feminist, and, but there were times when she seemed to be criticized by those in the movement. And can you speak to those aspects of Anna's story? Yeah, so I, let me first share with you a little bit about the, the context of feminism in Russia. Most people are not aware that there was a feminist movement in Russia. Um, a very active one in the 1860s. And this was part of a larger uh, set of sweeping reforms that were, um, that Russia was going through, the so-called great reforms of Alexander II. Uh, Russians were thinking about how they can modernize, how they can become competitive with Europe. 
um, especially after the humiliating defeat in the Crimean War. And so there were all sorts of reforms. One of them was this call to provide women with educational and professional opportunities to let them, um, you know, let them play an active role in rebuilding Russian society. And so the so-called woman question became a heated topic in the debate. How can we give women these opportunities? What can we do? High schools were opened um, specifically for women to give them an education on a par with you know, traditional um, high schools. And Anna, in fact, went to one of those. Universities opened their classes. Um, there was opportunities for women to become doctors and, um, and uh, nurses uh, and engineers. Um, and so this was very much in the air when Anna was growing up. Um, this was the, th these discussions, this excitement was very much a part of her upbringing. Um, and I should also say one other thing that's important is that the feminist movement in Russia was a countercultural movement. In other words, it moved from just trying to provide educational and professional opportunities for women to actually aligning itself with the revolutionary movement, the desire to overthrow um, you know, the, the, czar, the autocracy in general. And, you know, and uh, in fact, the one, one of the women who was the first woman who was executed was a, a woman by the name of Sofia Pirovskaya who had helped, helped to assassinate Tsar Alexander II. Well, she was a contemporary of Anna. She was one of these young feminists. Um, and they smoked in public. They dressed, you know, they, they didn't dress in the frilly muslin dress of the Russian mist. They wore long straight pants. Um, they cropped their hair short. They wore blue spectacles. And a telltale sign of the feminists is they did not believe in traditional marriage. So that was, they were opposed. What they believed in is what was called fictional marriages, which was, was an actual term. And you would go through all the motions of a marriage to satisfy, you know, so, social propriety and also to, uh, get the marriage certificate. And then the husband, if he were enlightened, would give his wife freedom to sleep with whoever she wanted uh, to, you know, leave him and go pursue a career, but at least she would have the, the cover of a marriage certificate. That is how women, the feminists, looked at marriage. Well, as you listen to this background, you think about Anna, in some respects, she was very much a feminist. Like the feminist, she was ambitious. She was smart. She was practical. Um, and, um, you know, and she, and she wanted independence, but at the same time where she di differed from them is that she did believe in traditional marriage. She did have traditional qualities, um, about her, which is one of the reasons that she stayed with Dostoevsky when any other woman at that time, and frankly, in our time probably would have left him. And so as a result of this, there are people who criticize Anna for having betrayed uh, her feminist ideals by sacrificing her life for Dostoevsky. Um, and what, what I try to do in the book is help people understand that what makes her so fascinating is that she was neither a progressive nor a traditional, nor a traditional. She was both. She was radically progressive, like the feminists, but she was also radically traditional. And her life was about navigating those two sides of her personality, um, which make her, frankly, so much more interesting than the other feminists of the time who were really rigid about the way that they defined feminism. Anna rewrote the script of what it meant to be a feminist in 19th century and, and 20th century Russia because of how she lived her life. 
Yeah, I really did not know about that period of time there. And it's it's very interesting. And really, uh, you know, in many ways, feminism should be about choosing the life that you wish to have, <laughs> uh, having the independence to choose your own life. And she, she chose hers. So um, that's interesting. Um, you talk about how Anna supported Dostoevsky's career. Um, and there's so many ways that she did that. But um, did she have any specific influence on his writings in particular? So she, she did. Um, as the relationship deepened and Dostoevsky started to appreciate the full extent of his wife's abilities, and not just her entrepreneurial abilities, her managerial abilities, but also he started to appreciate that she was had a really deep artistic sensibility. She was well-read, she was intelligent, and she understood literature and the literary world. And so he started granting to her uh, a right that he never would have given to anyone before, and that was the right to ha have a say in his artistic process, to actually contribute to his, his works themselves. And so, for example, he would consult with Anna on everything from the color of a character's hair. If Anna felt that the color of a character's hair should be different, Dostoevsky trusted her, as a good husband always should. Um, but he trusted her not just for that reason, because she was probably right. If Anna was moved by a scene in his novels, then Dostoevsky was relieved because he knew that the reader would be too. If Anna was not moved, then he knew he'd better rewrite that scene. Um, and so that's the kind of, you know, the kind of involvement that she had at, in his creative process. There's a wonderful story that Anna tells in her memoir about how when she was taking down dictation for Brothers Karamazov, uh, and she remembered how uh, for a very poignant scene at the end of the novel, the funeral of a young boy, um, and she was taking down dictation as Dostoevsky was speaking with her right hand, and she was wiping away tears from her eyes with her left, and Dostoevsky was so grateful that she was moved by the scene that he walks up to her and gives her a kiss on the forehead. Um, that's how much he valued her, her contributions. Um, and I should also say there's one other, um, and there's other examples of Anna was a terrific storyteller and she would come home with, uh, she had a photographic memory and she would tell stories about very simple things like what happened to her that day. And Dostoevsky would borrow bits and pieces of these stories for his novel. In fact, he lifted an entire story of hers uh, and turned it into a, um, a short story of his own called um, Century. I, I want to emphasize here that this is not the story of a rapacious male writer stealing you know, a woman's ideas and claiming it as his own. This was very much a partnership, and Anna wanted him to do this. It, well, this is not a Colette story. This was, you know, and, and Anna... Um, for her, it was it was actually she was actually grateful that he he had such an appreciation of her stories that he would include them in his own writing. But there's one other really important, um, not so obvious way in which she influenced his writings. And one of the great themes in, in all of Dostoevsky's novels that were written uh, during his marriage to Anna, some of his greatest novels, is the theme of compassion, the theme of of radical love, what it might look like to love somebody that's really difficult to love. And that is exactly what happens in Crime and Punishment when Sonia, uh, Sonia um, Marmeladova, the prostitute, forgives Raskolnikov 
once he he confesses the double murder, including the murder of someone who is her own friend, rather than judging him, she embraces him and weeps because she realizes what suffering he is going through. I mean, that is an example of this kind of incredible, almost Christ-like love that was such an important theme of Dostoevsky's. Well, scholars for generations have been trying to identify the source of that theme in Russian culture, in you know, uh, Christian theology and Dostoevsky's Russian, or, you know, Orthodox Christianity, Russian Orthodox Christianity. But very few people have commented on the fact that he had in front of him a living embodiment of this ideal of radical love that he was celebrating in his novels. Anna was that person. She suffered and stayed by his side and supported him through his epilepsy and his gambling addiction. Um, she was Sonia. And, uh, and in fact, he even said to her once during their honeymoon, and this is a quote, it's for those like you that Christ came. It's for those like you that Christ came. I mean, if my wife said that to me, I would, you know, I don't know what I would do. I would just, you know, be floored or think it was a joke. When Dostoevsky said it, there was not a hint of irony. He really believed that. And that's an important thing for us to keep in mind as, we're, as we read his novels and appreciate the reasons he was so interested in this theme of compassion, because he was the beneficiary of that kind of profound compassion that his wife gave, you know, exhibited towards him. Absolutely. So in, in the book, you gave a pretty stark example of how Anna really did save some manuscripts. And I wondered if you could, could read that, um, that piece of the book, please. Sure. So this is just one, one example of it illustrates who she was, her moxie, um, her entrepreneurial spirit. And the situation was that it was 1875. Dostoevsky had just finished the manuscript for a new novel, The Adolescent, and they were traveling back to Petersburg from their summer retreat um, to deliver that manuscript to the magazine so that they could collect, uh, he could collect his honorarium. Uh, and also um, in that same suitcase were all of the notes to the novel. Well, just an hour before they were about to board the train, Anna realized they'd brought the wrong suitcase. They did not have the suitcase with the manuscript and the notes, which means that not only would the novel have been lost, but Dostoevsky would not have been able to recreate it. It's certainly not easily. And Anna understood, understood what, what would have been lost. And she didn't even bother to ask him because she knew she, he would tell her not to do anything. So she made her a unilateral decision to hire a cabbie in this very seedy part of town in Novgorod and have the asset cabbie to take her back to the steamboat dock so she could look for the suitcase. And so I'm going to read to you from that scene. It was eight in the evening now, and they were racing through the shadier part of town where she saw people creeping out of tiny streets in between large gray warehouses. Tramps ran after them, shouting. The frightened cabbie urged the horse on so hard that it broke into a gallop. Upon reaching the dock, Anna jumped out of the carriage, stormed up the ramp to the steamship office, and banged her fists on a dark window. Guard, open up, open up right away, she shouted. Open up, Grandpa, this minute. A big black travel trunk was left here, and I've come to get it. It's here, a sleepy voice replied. She asked the guard to carry the trunk to the cab, promising to tip him. He didn't respond. She called to the cabbie to help, but he also refused, afraid his rig might be stolen. And so 
Without a moment's hesitation, Anna ordered the guard to open the door, which he did, and, quote, I grabbed the trunk by its handle and dragged it, stopping at every step. To make matters worse, the ramp was a long one, but I managed to lug it to the cab, end quote, at which point the cabbie jumped out and hoisted the 140-pound truck in between the seat and the coach box, and Anna climbed on top of it and sat down. She wrote, resolved not to give it up, even if hoodlums should attack. Amazed, the cabbie struck his horse and started down the street as figures emerged and started shouting at them from behind. As they approached the railroad station, Anna caught sight of her visibly distraught husband. She told him the, the whole story, what they'd almost lost, what she had done to save them. My God, he exclaimed, only think what dangers you put yourself into. After all, when those rogues who followed you saw the cabbie was driving a woman, they might have attacked you, robbed you, maimed you, killed you. His response spoke volumes about their roles within the family. Just think what would have happened to us, to me and the children, he moaned, warning her fecklessly. Oh, Anya, Anya, your rashness will lead you to no good. In this, he was, of course, mistaken. It was Anna's rashness that rescued his manuscript, averting disaster for his career and their entire family, just as her extraordinary daring, her tenacity and determination had saved them many times before. Whether out of lingering chauvinism or a dogged need to view his wife primarily as amanuensis rather than manager, the writer seemed incapable of shaking his idealized image of Anna as, quote, simple and angelic, as he'd recently described her in a letter. He needed to see her as someone requiring his protection and guidance, despite all the evidence to the contrary. But there's no sign that Anna minded this. She knew who she was and what she needed to do. All that mattered to her on this late summer evening was that the adolescent had been saved. Yeah, I think that's just a great example of, of their working together <laughs> to get some to, to make all this happen. So thank you so much for that. And, and finally, Anna did just some very extraordinary things. And in many ways, she was a woman ahead of her time. So what is her legacy in Russia? And, and what is it that you hope that readers really take away from this book? So her legacy is, is um, has many different dimensions. So for, you know, for starters, she disseminated Dostoevsky's work. She kept his works alive long after his death. She published seven editions of his complete collected works. Um, she, founded a, she founded a school for peasant children in Dostoevsky's name. Um, one of the first schools of its kind, which graduated by the time of its closing, which, which graduated a thousand peasant girls who otherwise might never have had an opportunity for an education. Um, she inspired a young man who was her errand boy for, for her business. Um, he, worked for the, he worked for her for a couple of years, and, and he learned from her, and he was so inspired by his work uh, in Anna's publishing enterprise that he himself went on to become one of Petersburg's prominent booksellers, um, and he was a peasant himself. He grew up, you know, he, he was, he, and he got an education, and this was, you know, large, he was largely inspired by his experience. Um, the other thing that Anna did, which would 
affect future generations is she fiercely crafted Dostoevsky's legacy. She fiercely crafted the narrative that she wanted future generations to know uh, about Dostoevsky. And she was very successful at that. Um, so successful, in fact, that, her, that she was a victim of her own success. Because one of the pieces of that narrative that she wanted the world to see uh, is, is what she develops in her memoir is that Dostoevsky was the star and that she was just a minor supporting actress. She intentionally wanted herself to be seen as, you know, in the background. Um, and part of that was humility, but also because she, I mean, she believed that he, you know, he was the star. Um, and that is the image of Anna that the world has had for generations, which is probably why until my book, there was no other, there's been no other book about her in English. She, she succeeded all too well in convincing us that, um, you know, that she was a, a bit player in this, uh, in the relationship. Um, and it required me to go into her archives and her unpublished materials and read the memoirs of others to really uncover who, who she was. Um, so those are some examples of, of her legacy. And I, I will tell you that like the spouses of, of many great writers, um, she is completely misunderstood. In Russia, there are two stories about her that were told in the 20th century. One story for those who even you know, knew about her was that she sold out. She betrayed her feminist ideals by sacrificing her life for Dostoevsky. Well, and she got it from the other side that she wasn't traditional enough, that she was a greedy, hard-driving, you know, mean businesswoman um, you know, who worked Dostoevsky to the bone. And so she got it from both sides. And of course, neither one of those is, neither one of those is true. And they reveal a lot more about the people who have that view than about Anna herself. And so what I want people to come away from th this book with is not just an appreciation of, you know, who this extraordinary woman was, but an appreciation of how she transcended ideologies of all kinds. She was not just a progressive. She was not just a traditional. Very few, very few of us are. You know, we live in an era which is divisive and, you know, people are trying to shove their ideologies down one another's throats, their stereotypes. Very few people fit any stereotype. And when you really get to know them and understand the complexity of their life story, you see that. So that is the honor that I wanted to, to show, a rich, multifaceted, contradictory, beautiful, um, sometimes you know, tough as hell, uh, you know, steely uh, woman who just had all of these different qualities that made her into a figure worthy of her own story and someone worthy of our, of our sympathy. Absolutely. It really was such uh, an interesting story and such a great book. So I just really want to thank you, Andy, for sharing this information regarding your new book. I really enjoyed reading it and learning about Anna. And I'm sure that our alumni and friends at the university will appreciate more, uh, learning more about your work and this interesting and compelling book. We will certainly be providing a link to your book in the podcast overview and, and uh, hope that some will take advantage and, and buy that book. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Susan. I, re I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. 
please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu backslash learn. You can also find our podcast and other recordings on Spotify. Search for the UVA Lifetime Learning Channel. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future Lifetime Learning programs.